Okay, uh, if you look at the front of your bulletins, uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 18.25 today. So if you could please open there and uh, then stand up. That's, uh, that's page 1152. We had, we had a little bit of a, a, a mix-up there. Um, as the, when the ushers pass out the, uh, the note sheets, you'll see uh, the, uh, the, the places that will be in Scripture today. So February 2002, I was at school at Davidson College. I had a car that year, my dad's 1992 uh, drop-top Mustang. Uh, I drove it across the country, and I had a car uh, in North Carolina. So I took advantage of that. Whenever I had an opportunity, I would try and visit other friends who were up and down uh, the eastern seaboard. And in February of 2002, for, what is it, President's Day weekend? Is that in February? For President's Day, I went up to Maryland to visit my friend Dan, whom many of you may remember. He was our guitarist for a long time uh, here. Dan was at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. And we were hanging out for the weekend, and we decided to see a movie. You yourselves may have seen this movie, uh, Black Hawk Down. Have you seen this film? Um, It's a pretty intense movie. I... uh, Well, it was 2002. You remember, uh, that was just a few months, really, after September 11th. It was a strange time. It was a very strange time for our country. Uh, It was a strange time for me especially, because my generation, uh, for those of you who know, we have a really hard time being uh, serious, right? We have a very hard time uh, being, what, uh, genuine, sincere. Our our generation is, is just dipped, soaked in irony and in cynicism. And as you've sort of put up with me as I've been growing up in this church, you've known how cutting, how edgy I can be, right? Where I, I just, oh, I'll just laugh at anything. It doesn't matter what, at what it's like. I can just shrug it off and ha, 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 and that's silly, and I'm cooler than that, right? Well, September 11th was a big shock for my generation because it was the kind of thing that nobody could laugh at. It was the kind of thing that was so intense, so serious, that it... it, it generated within a lot of the people in my generation uh, uh, something we weren't familiar with. It was a kind of sincerity, a kind of genuineness, a kind of well of, of what? Of, of just real sim- sympathy, empathy, feeling for our country. Well, that February we saw Black Hawk Down. If you don't know the movie, it's, it takes place, it's based on the book Black Hawk Down, which was written in, uh, following Mogadishu in Somalia in uh, the early 90s, 93, I think, when uh, the United States sent soldiers into Mogadishu to try and prevent, or try to help keep the peace and feed the people in the midst of a civil war. And for one day, really, a mission goes badly and a small squad of soldiers is caught in the middle of the city, surrounded by gangsters and thugs, under fire, and they're wounded, they're injured, and because it's nighttime, they're left behind and they can't get out. They're running low on ammunition, some of their men are injured, and at one point, one of the men who's injured uh, believes that he dies uh, while they're hunkered down waiting for rescue. A very strange thing happened to me when I saw this. I had to put my head down because I was actually tearing up a little bit. I was crying, uh, which was re- very, very strange for me to, to be that effect. I'm not my wife. Erin can't get... Th- she, she watches this TV show, Parenthood. She cries every episode because, you know, the family's loving each other or something. I'm like, what? 
<laughs> really? That's what it takes? Okay. Uh, but for me, for me to see, to see these men who were abandoned, who were caring for one another, who had put everything on the line, and to see them depending on each other and that maybe even not being enough, that, that struck a chord within me that, that it, it, it gathered to my mind what uh, September 11th had meant to me where I found within myself a kind of sincerity, a kind of genuineness, a kind of empathy that hadn't been there uh, in a long time. I share this with you because sometimes in the scriptures, there's a story that should elicit that kind of response from us, but it often doesn't, because the scriptures are written sort of in the style of J.R.R. Tolkien, where it reads just kind of like a history. There's not a lot of flesh and blood sometimes. So I'd like you to uh, think about a story that we may or may not know from the Old Testament. It's told in two places, actually. The first is in uh, 2 Kings 18, and the second is in Isaiah 36. It's very strange. The scriptures actually have the same material in both books, so you can, you can follow it in either place. Um, you don't need to turn there. I'm just going to give you a little, um, a little bit of a, a, a recap. This is 700 B.C. Now, in 700 B.C., we have, uh, we have, we've received from the tradition, we have a, uh, the annals of Sennacherib, 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 I don't know how to say it, but he's the king of Assyria, and he tells his stories. And at one point, he says, in, in the summer of 701 B.C., the Assyrian army captured 46 cities, and Hezekiah, the Judahite king, we caged him up in Jerusalem. Then it stops. You might be wondering, well, what happened, Sennacherib, to Jerusalem? You caged it up. What happened? The story in the scriptures goes that Hezekiah is uh, the first in a long line of kings who, who trusts and loves the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God who, who uh, brought the people out of bondage. Hezekiah is he's finally faithful. And Hezekiah has grown up hearing the words of the prophet saying, if you don't turn it around, Israel, things are going to go real bad for you. In fact, what I'm going to do, Israel, is I'm going to take Assyria and I'm going to turn Assyria into a club and I'm going to smack you around a little bit. You need to repent, Israel. Hezekiah does this. He tears down the idols. He reforms the law. He stops paying tribute to foreign kings. All in hopes that he can turn aside the wrath of Yahweh. The story in Isaiah 36 and in 2 Kings 18 is how badly this turns out for him. City after city, torn down, ravaged. It starts a series of the northeast and it begins, I guess for you guys, northeast, it begins and it, it's kind of like a, a little line you can see. And each time a city goes down, a new messenger comes and says, Hezekiah, king, we're in trouble. We've lost another city. Most of these aren't even in Israel's territory, but you can see the path that's being made. It's coming closer and closer and closer. And finally, Samaria, the the kingdom just to the north of Israel, falls to Sennacherib. The writing is on the wall. We know what's about to happen. And so the question for Hezekiah is, what do you do? You have prophets over here who say, make an alliance with Assyria, try and buy them off. Maybe that's the way out. You have prophets over here who say, Hezekiah, make a deal with Egypt. Have them send their cavalry and protect us. What nobody says 
well, except for Isaiah. Nobody but Isaiah says, Hezekiah, do nothing. Hold fast to the Lord. Keep in prayer. He will take care. Nobody says that. And we get that. I mean, betting on a long shot? I do not recommend gambling. I, I'm, in no way am I going to suggest that we should go out and gamble. But I do know people who gamble. I have a, a neighbor. He's, um, he loves betting on sports games. There's two ways to gamble, right? The first way is uh, the way my neighbor does, where he, he studies football. He's like a football, um, a professor of football. He even has every week on Friday, I think it's Friday mornings, he wakes up early so he can listen to some radio show on, I don't know, 570 or something like this, where there's this guy who, who makes the five upsets that you should bet on this weekend in order to make a killing. And this guy is so good, uh, my, my, um, my neighbor, Bob, he says, he says that uh, last year, this guy out of 16 weeks only missed four upsets. So if he had like, bet all this money in Vegas, he would have won $100 million or something crazy like that. But, but my, my, my neighbor Bob, he's insane. He's always figuring, he's like, who's in, who's out, which cornerback is injured, which one, uh, will, he, will Victor Cruz be able to beat him this week? I don't know, I don't know. Will he let, but, but he studies it enough, and if you study enough, you can make the call, right? You can find the long shot, and you can make the call. And if you do this well, over time, you just you rake it in. I mean, apparently there's people uh, who actually make a living betting, is that, wow, that seems, that seems like a really, um, I don't know, that's not for me. Erin uh, has a friend who, uh, her husband, he, he makes his living by, by playing online poker. He has four screens, and all he does all day is play online poker. Apparently he makes it, I, wow. Okay, uh, so that's one way to bet. You study hard, you find the long shot, and, and then, and then you, you put all in, and you win. Another way to bet, I, I know a, a man, an older man, who um, in the 1970s was in Las Vegas. And in Las Vegas, he was, uh, his wife was, was uh, I don't know, playing slot machines or something. And he was uh, talking to this guy, and they sort of, sort of struck up a, a friendship, a little conversation. And uh, they, they kind of got to know each other, and they like each other, or whatever. So this guy uh, is talking to my, my older friend. He says, hey, man, I got to go. I got to get back to work. But um, here, why don't you, and he takes out a $20 bill. He says, I want you to just go over to that roulette table over there. And I want you to pick, take this $20 bill, and I want you to put it on black 35. 33. Black 33. This older gentleman, okay. And he's watching this guy walks away, and he kind of walks over, and he sort of bends down and whispers into uh, the, de- the roulette guy's uh, ear. And the roulette guy kind of looks over and sees uh, my friend over, over there. He's like, oh, okay. He walks off. Okay, well, I'll bite. Why not? Takes the twenty dollars, roll that wheel spin. Wow, the fix was in. The weekend is paid for. What do you know? Wow, it's as if it wasn't a bet at all. It was. We weren't gambling at all. Somebody knew something and had something, and there were magnets and there were rolling balls and whatnot. But it was not. It was not chance. That's the second way to gamble. The second way of gambling, you'll notice, is not gambling at all. It's um, knowing the right people. It's having the inside word. It's knowing something that nobody else knows. If you're going to bet on the long shot, you can do it one of two ways. One, 
You can study, you can research, professor of gambling. The other way, the other way is to have an inside, inside uh, word, inside note. Friends, Hezekiah bets on Black 33. He does so because he has a word. He has an inside track. He knows something nobody else knows. Uh, if you look in your, uh, in your note sheets, or really it's just uh, some text here, Isaiah 29, 11 to 17, uh, this is the, these are some of the oracles of Isaiah right before um, the encounter with Sennacherib in 701 B.C. And uh, the prophet says, The entire vision will be to you like the words of a sealed book, which they give it to the one who is literate, saying, Please read this. And the literate guy says, I can't. It's sealed up. Well, then the book is given to one who is illiterate, saying, Please read this. And he says, I can't read. The Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and the reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, I, behold, I will proceed to change this people, and I will convert them, and I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will hide the understanding of the prudent. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from Yahweh, and whose deeds are done in a dark place, and they say, Who sees us or who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, He did not make me. Or what is formed, say to him who formed it, He has no understanding. Is it not yet just a little while before Lebanon will be turned into a fertile field, and the fertile field will be considered a forest? Annette's not here. Jerry. It's okay. Uh, a couple weeks ago, um, I, Annette asked me after church, she, she said, what, what do you preach out of? What version? I said, well, I, you know, different ones. I try to keep it in uh, New King James if I can. She's like, you know, I grew up or I, I learned the scriptures in the New American Standard. Do you think you could pull that one out? I said, yes, Annette, next time I will preach from New American Standard. So here it is. It's the New American Standard. She'll have to, she'll have to listen to it on the, on the, uh, the, the website. What can I say? But I, w- I did remember Well, it's not all in New American Standard. In fact, if you look at verse 14, you'll see uh, there's a couple words there, bolded. That's actually not uh, the New American Standard at all. That's an English translation of the Septuagint. Um, Everything around it is the New American Standard, but that right there is an English translation of the Septuagint. You'll remember the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, It was translated by a, a group of rabbis in Alexandria, Egypt, probably in the 300s. Uh, 200s BC. Um, we're not exactly sure. Uh, the reason I, I've used that is because in a second we're going to see that Paul, and this is just a m- note on the text for you guys. Um, when you're reading, uh, especially in the New Testament, a lot of times the, the people in the New Testament will quote scripture. And if you're, if, you're, if, you're, uh, if you're curious, you'll look back and a lot of times you'll see that what they say isn't exactly what you read in the Old Testament. The reason for that is that our Old Testament is based on the Masoretic text, the Hebrew of the scriptures. A lot of times in the New Testament, like us, they, were, they knew the scriptures in translation. So a lot of times they know the scriptures through the Greek, through the Septuagint. And we'll see that in the case, in the case here uh, with Paul in 1 Corinthians. He's going to quote from the Septuagint. So I've, um, I've just made that little change there for you because it's important. It's important because it, it's telling us how Paul is reading or hearing the Old Testament. Okay? 
And you'll notice there, it says, Therefore, I, behold, I will proceed to change this people, and I will convert them. And I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will hide the understanding of the prudent. You might be asking, what does this have to do with Sennacherib? What does this have to do with Israel? What does this have to do with the, the story? They're, they're, they're coming down, and the people are scared, and, and Hezekiah's are... In fact, uh, Sennacherib sends one of his, uh, his messengers, the Rabshakeh, and this guy comes up, and he starts yelling over the gates. He yells in, uh, in Aramaic, uh, the scriptures tell us, just so that the people at the gates will understand. And he says, Hezekiah, if you don't start dealing right now, your, the people inside your gates are going to starve to death. And then he tells that they're going to be eating um, things that come from human bodies. Right? This is not going to be good for you. The people are terrified. They're, they're hunkered down. It's, I mean, it's Black Hawk Down, 700 BC. They're hunkered in. Their bullets are whizzing. People are in, they're in trouble. Right? What, is, what does Isaiah have to do with that right here? Well, there's a problem. The problem is this. God has said some things about Israel. God has said, I'm going to club you. I'm going to beat you because you've been naughty. At the same time, God has always said, I love my people and I will never abandon them. Uh, a couple of months back, we talked about chesed. God's never, ever give up, hold fast, won't quit on you kind of love. God's sworn to his people a covenant, I won't give up on you. And yet, he has to punish them because he said, this is how you're going to live. They didn't. He has to do something, right? So God's in a bind. God's got handcuffs on. How's God going to sort it all out? What's God going to do? in order to be true to his word, and yet be true to his word? What can God do to be just, and yet be merciful? What can God do to be loving, and yet at the same time, go through with the judgments that he's called for? How can God be God? Well, in human wisdom, there's no way to do it. The human wisdom says, well, make a deal with Assyria. Make a deal with Egypt, Hezekiah. Find some way out of this. God's abandoned us. God can't do it. God's, God's got nothing. There's no way for God to get us out of this situation. And God says, I will change this people. I will convert them. In so doing, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will hide the understanding of the prudent. God says, I'm going to find out a way to do right to my own word and for my people. And I'm going to do it so crazy that the best of human wisdom, the highest human knowledge, is going to trip all over itself. People's jaws are going to drop, and they're going to say, this God is God. What God does is he lets Sennacherib and the Assyrians conquer these nations and these nations and these cities and these cities. He lets them conquer Samaria. He gets them right outside the gates of Jerusalem to the point that Sennacherib even says in his history, I caged Hezekiah the Judahite up in a... I, I caged him in. Sennacherib stops. Because if we know the scriptures, we know what happened next. Nobody? Wait for it. I'm sorry? Victory, yes. A victory caused by a plague. Sennacherib's armies get the plague and they're decimated. 
totally annihilated. He, he just, it's funny in his histories, he just stops. He says, I caged him in like a beast or whatever. And then he moves on to the next thing he did like the next week. Because the fact of the matter is his whole army got wiped out and the Jews didn't even lift a finger. The people on the, on the, they're, they're sitting there, they're like, Hezekiah, we're gonna, we're gonna rebel because this is crazy. You are, you, what are you thinking? At least get the Egyptians on our side. Anything. Hezekiah's like, nope. Uh, I, see, the thing is, fellas, I was told to bet on back thir- black 33. I, I got a little inside word, guys, and you know what? As, as much pressure as I'm in right now, I'm just gonna stick to my guns because you know who I trust more than you? I trust him. And so God, yeah, just annihilates the Assyrian armies. The Assyrians run away. The Jews live to fight another day. The best wisdom of the wise is turned upside down. I mean, who, how do you predict that? How do you, I mean, wow. Everything was going so well for this guy, and then nothing. Uh, the reason I have uh, change and convert and then later will be turned into in bold is because that's the same word in the Greek. Uh, a lot of translations actually do number 14. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to remove this people, and I will remove them. There's two meanings for that word. Um, I disagree 100% with that reading, uh, precisely because later on we see God's talking about what he's going to do with Lebanon. He's going to turn it into a fertile field. He's going to convert it. He's going to change it. God's going to do something so crazy for these people that they're going to be changed from the inside out. They're going to look at God's action and be blown away. Their hearts are going to flip. They're going to join Hezekiah. They're going to say, Hezekiah is right. This is all in the background as we approach our text today. If you'd stand, please, let's read 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to the perishing ones. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will hide the understanding of the prudent. Where's the wise guy? Where's the scribe? Where's the the sophist, the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Indeed, Jews, they want signs. Greeks search for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than than people, and God's weakness is stronger than men. Please be seated. You see that, I I love this, Uh, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. You know, for the last three or four weeks, we've uh, been listening, uh, Neil's been, been preaching a lot about knowing God. And one of the things Neil's taken a shot at is learning, knowledge, books. Neil's been saying, hey, that's not all there is. And I think that Neil's on to something. I think Neil is just 
saying Paul's words after him. Neil's just saying Isaiah's words after Isaiah. If you start from the bottom and you think, I'm going to think my way right to God, you're not going to get there. Why? Well, in Paul's day, uh, foolishness. You know, we have a problem. Uh, nowadays, we've got Richard Dawkins, you've heard of him, or um, Christopher Hitchens, who I think just recently passed. The New Atheists. You guys know these guys? They're like the, they're like the evangelical version of atheists. So we, we knock on doors and we're like, Jesus will save you. And they, they knock on your door and they're like, there's no God. It's like, okay. They're, uh, yeah, I, I like to think of us as like two sides of, of, of the battle. Like they're, they're the ones preaching the, the, what, the sad news that there's nothing. And we're the ones preaching the good news that there is uh, there's salvation in Christ. Nevertheless, the, uh, the evangelical atheists, the new atheists, what they say is they say there's no God. Well, in the ancient world, the closest thing you could say to there is no God would be something like, ah, it's hard to tell which God's real, you know? Because there's many gods in the ancient world. In fact, if you're uh, Aristotle, uh, he, he thought that God was like um, infinite uh, reflection on reflection. Like thought about thought was the, prime, was the, the first cause of prime. Very strange, very abstract. That was Aristotle. Uh, there's, of course, the traditional gods, right? Um, you know, Zeus or... What is, Zeus becomes Jupiter in, in Rome. I can't remember. Mars, those guys. They're running around. And then uh, Caesar. Caesar was a god. Uh, he, had, he was like... There was even a cult where people got together and they worshipped Caesar. So the question in the ancient world was not, is there a god? The question was, which god is real? Well, why does Paul say foolishness? Greeks, they search for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. It's kind of strange. We, you know, we have the cross up there. We wear it around our, our, our necks sometimes. We see it all over the place. Um, yesterday, I, I saw a kid wearing a t-shirt. And on it, it said um, something like, opt- it said optimism, right? But the T in optimism was a cross, Right? So, I mean, I think that the message of the t-shirt was something like, I can be optimistic about my life because I have, you know, because I know Jesus or something like that. Well, it's very strange that, that this, this symbol, this cross, can mean that to us. But of course it can because we have 2,000 years of Christian tradition sort of uh, behind us. We've seen so much of God. In the first century, the cross was scandalous. The cross was an embarrassment. Uh, Julius Caesar, he tells a story where he, um, he went after some pirates and he caught them. And these, uh, in, in, back in the day, we, we, pirates now are really cool. Everyone likes pirates. You know, Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp is a great pirate. He, apparently he's a pirate based on a, one of the, the musicians in the Rolling Stones. I, okay. Uh, so, there, yeah, that's one pirate. We also have Jake and the Neverland Pirates, which I've mentioned to you before. In this, in this TV show, it's really fascinating. The uh, treasure for these little pirates is things like, like basketballs and guitars, right? And, and, and in order to seek this treasure, they have to work together and be friendly to one another. That's a little bit of a different kind of piracy from, you know, real piracy, <laughs> in the day. Especially in the first century, pirates were uh, basically a little better than animals. Uh, Pirates were treated very, very poorly when they were caught. 
In fact, the, the point of uh, or what was sort of standard operating procedure was to uh, shame and humiliate them as you tortured them to death. And so what you would do is you would crucify them. Uh, crucifixion was a uh, special, type, special type of pen- penalty reserved for people like pirates, for people who um, abused and uh, stole and murdered, usually in that order. Julius Caesar writes, he says uh, he was fighting these pirates, and he was actually really impressed. He was like, hey, you know, usually the pirates would just break, and they'd just run as quick as they could because uh, they wanted to get out of there. But in this case, uh, the pirates, they stayed together, they worked as a unit. Julius Caesar was pretty impressed. He said, wow, these guys are, um, these are not just your average run-of-the-mill pirate. And so he, after he, he defeated them and caught them, he wanted to do something nice for them. And so what did he do? Before he crucified them, he executed them quickly. Julius Caesar, great guy. The ancient world, life was cheap. The point, though, the point, though, uh, of that of that story is that crucifixion. Um, well, you're, you're you're hung up there. You're naked, um, and if you're not executed first, you're you know suffocating to death. You're basically exposed for everyone who can see you as totally weak, totally impotent, totally at the mercy of the powers that are greater than you. On the cross, you are less than a citizen, less than a woman, less than a slave, less than a dog. You're an embarrassment, a humiliation. This is God. The Greeks spent a lot of time thinking their way to what ultimate reality, what God was like. And in none of their systems, in none of their ideas, could they ever come up with a God who, ex- who discloses himself to us in that less than an animal What kind of God would humiliate himself in front of his creation? What kind of God would be an embarrassment? For the Jews, Christ crucified is a stumbling block, Paul says. Well, it's because the Jews are looking for a sign. He also says, show us something. You'll see this in the Gospels a number of times. Like, you know, prove you're the Messiah. Jesus will, like, heal somebody and they're like, the devil did it. Uh... The reason is because they're looking for a specific kind of sign. They're looking for a sign, and most of us know this, we've been in this church for a while, they're looking for Jesus to raise up the sword and throw off Caesar. If you want to prove that you're from God, do what Judas Maccabee did and set us free. You are not going to do a good job of setting people free if you're being tortured to death. It's foolish. It's stupid. It's unwise. 
Well, Paul, Paul's been thinking about what God's wisdom looks like. Paul's been thinking back to how God rescued the people in the days of Hezekiah. And he saw that what God did was it's not the sort of thing you can predict. It's not the sort of thing a wise person would come up with. It's not the kind of thing that makes a lot of sense to people who are in the know. If you're researching the football teams and trying to figure out which one's going to have an upset victory, you're not going to come up with that answer. No, the Jacksonville Jaguars are not going to win this year. They're really, really, really bad. Slightly worse than the Oakland Raiders, Steve-O. Steve-O's got um, the Raiders. He loves the Raiders. And uh, Darren McFadden uh, is their running back. He's driving me nuts because this guy, in junk time, after the team's already lost and the other team just sort of gives up, he just gets all these rushing yards and touchdowns, ruining my fantasy football team. Well, thanks, Oakland Raiders. Jeez. This is not the kind of salvation we expect. This is not the kind of thing you can figure out. This is not the kind of power that's powerful. This isn't the kind of power that's power over people, power for victory. This isn't the kind of glory that's glorious. It's humiliating. It's embarrassing. It's something you should be ashamed of. Which is why when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, he's saying something radical. He's saying, I know what the Spirit has done in my life. And so I can say something that is so ridiculous to you that you cannot possibly believe it. And I can say it with a straight face. When you read in Acts, when uh, Paul argues um, with the Athenians, the Greeks in Athens, I think maybe there's even a sort of a subtext where at the end the, the, the Greeks were like, mm, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll listen to you again on this. I think they're being kind of polite. I think they're sort of rolling their eyes being like, really? Okay. Well, Mr. Crazy here has got to go back home because this is nonsense. I think that might be a little bit in the background. You'll notice that, um, that Luke never says in, in that section of Acts that you know, there were many converts. Because these people are looking for wisdom and what they're hearing is rubbish. Neil's been saying for a while that we need to have a little bit less knowledge about God and a little bit more knowledge of God. I've titled this message A Special Proposition because last week Neil was talking about propositions. Propositions are you know, statements of truth, right? So, uh, for example, 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's a good proposition. Um, if you reflect on that proposition, you're going to find that you just can't come up with a way for it not to be true. Unless you're living in 1984 by George Orwell, um, you remember this book where they're taught, the government has such total power over their minds that they're, they're even able to think 2 plus 2 equals 5. And so they're completely divorced from reality. Uh, and they have a special language, things are double plus ungood. It's a great book, you should check it out. But for the rest of us in the real world, if you say 2 plus 2 equals 4, you can't come up with a way out of that. That's a proposition, it's, it's a statement of truth. I suggest to you that God is a trinity. That is a proposition. It's a truth. God was on the cross. That is a proposition. That is a statement of truth, but it's a special proposition. Think about that. 
Paul says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to we who are being saved, it is God's power. A special proposition. You reflect God crucified and all you can think is what? Madness? That's what the world says. But if, like me, you think that and you think, somehow in this, God has taken my place, God has been me for me, and has redeemed me, and has given me a new life and a new hope, it's a special proposition. The mind founders. No wisdom is wise enough to understand this plan, this mad way of salvation. God is in the business of destroying the wisdom of the wise, hiding the understanding of the prudent, so that when the end of the world comes, and we're all there, we can all, the, the ones of us who, who want to be the smartest guy in the room, we stand up and say, I'm the smartest guy in the room. And God looks and says, explain that. I stand before you as someone who spent a lot of time, a lot of time, trying to be the smartest guy in the room. I, I can even remember in high school where um, I would just, I just loved getting arguments with Catholics or agnostics or whomever, and I'd just argue, argue, argue. And I always had answers for everything. I submit to you that still, even today, man, there's something inside me that just wants to just jump out and be like, I get it, I'm, I, I understand. I, wa I just want to be that guy. It's uh, the sin of pride. Um, but when I reflect on what God did in Christ, I'm, I'm embarrassed. I'm humiliated. Because all the answers, all the plans, all the figuring, all the thinking, all the propositions, all of that, when it comes right up to it, none of it makes enough sense to explain the cross. That God himself would be an embarrassment for us. That he would identify with the lowliest criminals for us. That he would take his own glory and set it aside for us and then say to us when you rest in that it is my glory a caveat the people who Paul is talking to are in, in this section are the Corinthians and the Corinthians are known for uh, what always wanting to be the smartest guy in the room they're the ones who've either had such wonderful experiences that they have better knowledge and better uh, understanding of God than anybody else. Or they're the ones who figured it all out with philosophies of, you know, stoicism and whatever. And they've got it all figured out. And Paul says, when you've got it all figured out, think about the cross. Think about the cross. Our God is an embarrassment, and in that he is glorious.
So the caveat is this. If you're the sort of person who has it all figured out, if you're like me, this is Paul talking right at you. The moment you have it all figured out is the moment that God's going to come up with some crazy way to blow your mind. Just as he did in Hezekiah's day, so he does with Christ. And so I believe he does now. But if you're the sort of person who doesn't need to be the smartest guy in the room, you're the sort of person who doesn't have it all figured out, you come uh, to, to these texts with an open, eye, uh, open eyes and an open heart just waiting for the Lord to speak to you, I, I think what Paul's saying is, well done. You're right where you ought to be. God's well pleased through the foolishness of this message preached to save those who believe. In the last day, God's going to point and he's not going to say, look at all the smart people I saved. He's going to say, hey, look at all the people who the world counted for nothing and I thought were worthwhile. It's good to know that we don't have to have it figured out, that we don't have to be, have all the answers, that we don't have to be able to make sense of everything. It's good to know that God came up with a way to save us that prevents us from doing it. That God's wisdom, or I'm sorry, what is it? God's, God's foolishness is wiser than men, and God's weakness is stronger than men. The foolishness of God was enough to save Hezekiah. It was enough to send Christ. And God's weakness at the cross was enough to save us from our sins. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we can be foolish people. People who can simply sit at the feet of your cross and know that your wisdom is higher than our wisdom, that your weakness is higher than our strength, that your plans are too wonderful for us. God, let us be people who simply embrace the majesty of your foolishness. Let us be people who are not ashamed of a God who thought it would be good to be an embarrassment. God, let us be humble people that the ones around us will be shocked that such weakness can be such power. God, we love you and we want to know you. We want to know about you to the point that we have to go down to our knees and just be with you. Thank you, God. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.